listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Every morning, Zendos around the world have a certain liturgy that they kind of go through, a certain uh, uh, series of chants that they do. Um, Of course, it depends on the orientation of the particular Zendo and so forth, but uh, one of the ones I was most closely affiliated with read the Heart Sutra. They chanted the Heart Sutra every single morning, and this is a very, very famous famous sutra. The idea is the Heart Sutra pretty much encapsulates the heart of Zen teaching. And it goes through this really beautiful expression of how um, all of this is real, but all of this is also unreal. And they say that with the very famous line of emptiness is form, and form is emptiness, meaning that every single thing is born out of the infinite. There is nothing that doesn't come from the infinite. And I always thought this was really trippy, especially when I was, I, as I was starting out, I'm kind of reading through this thing, I'm going, and everybody's just chanting it. And it was really intimidating too, because as I was starting out, they all knew it by heart. And so they just kind of keep going, 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 and they just be reciting this thing. And I'm still, you know, kind of looking at the, the cheat sheet or whatever, kind of, kind of reading along. And I would try to internalize it. I would try to really, you know, kind of think about this. What is this pointing to? All these words, 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 words. How can you talk about this stuff when you really can't talk about this stuff? Is there anything to say? about the Dharma. I got very literal in my, uh, and kind of angry. Um, and this is actually a really good sign. The minute you start questioning the teacher and the teaching, everything takes off. And so I brought this to, uh, to my teacher. I, I was, you know, it wasn't just the Heart Sutra that I was struggling with. It was the whole thing. You know, this whole idea of, you know, uh, what is enlightenment? Who cares? Are you enlightened? You know, all these, all these great, uh, great questions and so forth. And his ability to meet that head on to this day was utterly inspiring. Absolutely not threatened by my being threatened. The more doubt, the better. Bring the doubt. Let's talk about it. And what's really cool about uh, the tradition um, of Buddhism, that takes in various forms of it, what I think is really cool about it is that it hinges on one's ability to question, not on one's ability to believe. It's not about belief. In fact, convictions 
and surety and certitude are what derail the entire process. So allowing wonder to kind of be there, cultivating wonder as opposed to cultivating the dualism of this is right, this is wrong. I like, I don't like. My preference is this, I'm not into that. The minute we can let wonder in deeply, we can become intimate with that wonder, is the minute we can become very intimate with that point at which form and emptiness meet. That point where they meet, that dance right there, is an enlightened life. It's where there's a conscious recognition that I don't know anything and bestowed upon me and all beings are the keys to unlock a deep, resonant truth that is timeless. All of that plays together in that space. And we're reminded of this, we're reminded of this in the Heart Sutra when the very end, the very end of the Heart Sutra, it's, the, uh, it, it's written, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasam Gate, Bodhi Svaha. Very cool sounding language, but when you translate it, it's, it's just spectacular. It's Gate, Gate, which means go, go. Then the next, Paragate, go beyond. Parasam Gate, go way beyond. Bodhi, Realization, Svaha, wow. Very elemental. Go, go, go beyond, go way beyond. Realization, yippee. <laughs> and this doesn't take anything special. It doesn't require a, a special state. It requires that you and I and everyone let go of what we're clinging to, that we open. The clinging is what prevents the svaha, prevents the bodhi too. It means you're not gateing, you're not going anywhere. If it's all about posturing, if it's about doubt, if it's about some type of uh, uh, spiritual pugilism. I think that's the title to my next book, <laughs> Spiritual Pugilism. <laughs> Boxing for Buddha. When we can open, when we can really begin to allow our doubts in, no matter what shape they take, when we can allow our certitude to be right there in front of us so that we can see through it, that's what allows us to keep going. That's what allows us to go beyond. Otherwise, what we do is we tend to just spiral we tend to stay kind of caught. 
And while this isn't necessarily a bad thing, it means that we tend to just then sample little bit by little bit by little bit. We don't really ever go deep. We never are able to kind of just commit to ourselves and to our practice to go deeper, to go beyond, to go way beyond. So in tonight's sitting, try just letting yourself be. Let yourself doubt. Let yourself do whatever it's going to do. Rest. And then watch that. Watch your mind. Let it do what it's going to do. You don't have to push it one way or another. You don't have to scold it. You know? You don't have to scold your body either. Oh, you shouldn't be feeling this way. You've been sitting for a long time. Your knees should be fine. Wussy. Don't do that. Be with the discomfort. Same thing goes if you're lucky enough to uncover just an amazing, blissful experience. Don't deny it. I've been doing this long enough for this to happen. Just be right there. Be right there for your life. Being there fully for your life allows you to awaken in this very life as opposed to waiting for some type of egoic negotiation whereby you will agree to awaken perhaps in your next life. How about now? Bodhisvaha. There was a Dharma talk I heard once where the, the priest was, he'd finished with his talk and then there was a tea afterwards and so forth and then there was a Q&A after the, after the tea. And um, this guy was a really interesting, interesting fellow. He uh, uh, was a, a hipster, part of the beat, the beat group. Uh, by his own admission, smoked way too much pot. Uh, but he said it all set him up for his work in Zen. And that was part of his talk. Indeed, it was a very interesting, self-referential, beautiful discussion about power. And so we, you know, people go in and, and for the Q&A and they, this, the very first question was, I'll never forget this, 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 this young woman, she asked, what's the most powerful thing in the world? And without batting an eyelash, she leaned forward and said, words. Next question. And I thought it was the coolest response. Very powerful. Because what we do is we imbue words with meaning. Put another way, we attach to words. Words offer us clinging. Last week, one of the big words I spoke of was the word God. People cling to God. That word, every single one of us, has 
a history around it. And if you believe that history, if you imbue that history with certitude, we lose our way. Now, this doesn't mean that there can't be commitment. For instance, most of us in this room would be uh, certain that racism is wrong. That discriminating against somebody because of their, let's say, sexual orientation or uh, their gender or something, like that that's wrong. Of course. Of course, you could say it's wrong, but saying it's wrong usually means you go to war with the idea. When we look at it instead of, instead, we begin to see it as, wow, there's a lot of unconsciousness around that. Then suddenly, we're able to create a little bit of space around what generates pain within us. So if we use the example of racism, for instance, we look at racism as being wrong. The minute we look at it as wrong, that's not right. People who believe that are wrong. We've suddenly gone to war. We've suddenly become, instead of uh, attached to uh, racism, we've just become attached to anti-racism and we're still attached, so we basically feel the war, okay? On the other hand, if we can look at somebody who is behaving in a racist way, we can look at them, not down our nose, but we can look at them as reminding us where we are clinging. And if we cannot have any clinging around the idea of racism, nor any clinging around the person who's perpetrating racism, suddenly we, we can become agents of peace in the face of the war we've labeled racism. But not until then. So what wars, excuse me, what words catch you up and lead to war? Actually, I could have said that. What wars catch you up and lead to words? Not getting caught is ultimately this work. Not getting caught by concepts. Not getting pushed around or hammered by ideas. When we neither are working to avoid nor grasp onto something, when we're not looking to grasp onto something else, which we call avoidance, or grasp onto something right in front of us, which we call greed. When there's no greed, nor, nor aversion, there's stillness. And in that still place, all of awakening unfolds. So this path, this particular version of a timeless teaching is nothing special. This particular path also is nothing new. I've never once in this setting 
said anything unique or original. I did do one thing unique and original when I clinked my canteen <laughs> as a way of, that just sounds like a great Dharma bell. Oh, yeah. That's about the only thing, and you were here to see it. <laughs> or hear it. <laughs> Be with it. Everything else I've either uh, uh, borrowed or, or shamelessly stolen from somebody else. Everything. There's nothing new about this. But this path to greater wholeness, this deeply unoriginal path, is really about non-obstruction. If we were going to look at quasi-definition of nirvana, uh, you might want to say it's, it's unobstruction. We're no longer obstructed. There's nothing getting in the way of a free flow. We're not caught on one of the eddies off to the side of life's flow. We have stilled our lives to the point to where we can actually see to the bottom of this stream, this flow of life. We can see to the bottom and we can recognize what things are getting in the way of the free flow of our being. And usually it takes a little bit of stillness for this to happen. Most of us live lives like, I keep having the image of kayakers on rapids, you know, just boom, 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 trying to navigate, you know, go through this gate, and then you got to do this one behind, and so forth. Have, have anybody ever, have you ever seen? I mean, it's just incredible, the stuff that they can do on these, these courses. And that's typically the way we, we live. When we slow down, however, we can see what's getting in our way. And more often than not, we don't want to face it. More often than not, we'd rather deal with the familiarity of a raging river than to actually lift the stone, move it off to the side. But integrating our daily lives with stillness, or integrating stillness into our daily lives, allows for freedom, a deep, penetrating freedom, an unobstruction, or rather, we live non-obstructedly. So why or how is it that we live in really obstructed ways? It's actually fairly simple, and that is that we identify with thought. We identify, in other words, we cling to certain thought patterns like I described. We also cling to certain physical sensations. We wanna feel good. And so we cling to that feeling good and if we're not feeling good, we tend to reject, which makes us an addict in one way, shape or form. If this doesn't make me feel good, I'm, I'm doing something else. If this person doesn't make me feel good, they're out. Now, that's not necessarily an unhealthy situation. You might be in a uh, an, an environment where you really need to get out. But is it that you need to get out because someone doesn't make you feel good? Or is it because it's destructive? 
or is it look very carefully at that? Because if you're depending on someone else to make you feel good, you've just put a tremendous amount of pressure on them, so much so that they will always continually disappoint. Look at your attachment to how you feel. One of the most brutal things I ever did was uh, sign up for uh, an extended seven-day retreat, and I had no business doing it, but I, uh, I, was, I was young and really stupid. And I uh, was looking back on it, probably one of the best decisions I ever made. So there is something to be said for being young and stupid, I guess. Uh, I got into the Sashin, and um, I started feeling pretty bad pain by the end of the first night. By the end of the second afternoon, it's day two, it's a seven-day-long seven long experience. Um, by the end of day two, I was going crazy. It was hurting so bad. By the end of day three, I thought I actually might lose consciousness. It was, I, and if it wasn't my knees, it was my back, or it was this pain I had developing, you know, in my chest, or it was a headache. It was just my body was going, stop now, stop now, and there was this rather miraculous shift that I've I've written about before where the pain revealed itself as intensity. That's all. It was intensity. I imbued it with meaning based on past experience. I imbued it with, oh, this isn't intensity. This is pain. It does not feel good. Therefore, get out. And instead, uh, I had um, a teacher in a community that was kind of there to act as a container. Say, you know what? If you need to get out, you can. Don't worry, we'll still be here. Which inspired me to stay. And what happened was the revelation of the intensity as being nothing more than a deep thought pattern allowed my relationship to the pain to shift. It was no longer pain. It was just intensity that I was not going to run from. Applying that simple lesson to the rest of my life changed it pretty radically. I'm not going to be able to have a life of pleasure. That's not what I want anyway. I want a life. I'm imagining most of you are in the same space. Did you ever see the Twilight Zone, or was it Outer Limits, where the, it was all pleasure all the time? Wait, I think it was Twilight Zone. Um, help me out if somebody can remember this one, but where the, everybody, the guy got everything he wanted whenever he wanted it, and it was great for a little while, and then the suffering really began, and he found out that he was actually in hell. <clears throat> Anyway, clinging to feelings or clinging to ideas is what, once again, derails this process. It's what keeps us from going beyond, going way beyond. And you can always tell where there's clinging <coughs> because there will be 
either any any one of these things or in combination an I, a me, or a mine involved. If there is a, an I, eyes tend to show up as being a separate self-sense, or what we call the ego. And eyes have their own belief structure. They have their own sense of, of, of selfhood. You might also call it the small self. The me is really interesting because the me is a self-reference from the I. It's the I's version of itself, so it's even a little bit more contracted. And then the mine is what the me actually clings to. So if we can be very, very careful about what kind of relationship we have to our I, our me, and our mine, and we can begin to look at that with total attention, bring our full awareness into how often our I, our me, or our mind shows up, what then happens is we begin to see through it just like we can see through pain as intensity. We begin to see through the I as something that is in fact not in substantial and not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's actually very partial. And this occurs very naturally when we can bring a stillness practice into our life, whether it's contemplative prayer or meditation, whatever it is, when there is deep stillness and it's not caught. Our minds are not caught. Our bodies are not caught. Then this, this series of obstructions that can show up tend to tend to kind of fall away. We begin to see through time itself. We begin to see through our past as just being past. All the stories that have brought themselves into our experience, we begin to see through them as not being very substantial. It's not that they're wrong, it's just that they're not that substantial. We begin to see through any future planning we might have. We begin to see that all that stuff we, we, uh, uh, we churn and burn in our heads about what might happen if begins to be much less substantial. It's not that it's not there, but we're no longer hammered by it, just like we're no longer hammered by our memories. We see that we're not our pain. We are not our fear. We see that Continually, we are divine manifestations of the infinite, just like all other things. We see that we arise out of emptiness, and we will always die back into emptiness. That all things, indeed, come from emptiness and die back into emptiness. The temporary nature of all things begins to show up. We begin to see how much we imbue things with meaning that is only partial. We begin to see through our life. We become transparent, and the life we lead begins to become transparent. And in that transparency, fearlessness spontaneously and naturally arises. We begin to see that we're not our possessions. We begin to see that we're not our jobs. 
that were not our reputations, our educational experiences, our appearances, our social groups, were not our religion, were not our belief systems, nor are we our convictions. We are not our values. We are not our relationships. We are not our history. We just are. Every one of us sharing this life and death experience together. Everyone part of the same whole. And the differences that we can observe are just that. Simple, observable differences. And at this realization, when we start seeing this, once again, we are invited to go, go, go beyond, go way beyond realization. Yahoo! Any questions? Yes. When you're talking about pain, mm. physical pain, mm -hmm. labeling it, my head hurts, um, do you think that it feels different to different people depending on how they label their headache? Well, if it's my head ache, then you possess it then you own it, or more appropriately, it owns you in that moment, doesn't it? If it's just intensities arising, what kind of imputation is there on the discomfort? It's just discomfort, it's just intensity, it's just, and so what we do is we shift rather radically, and by radically I mean at a root level we shift our perspective on what used to be this damn headache I have in my head, right? I'm obviously extrapolating probably pretty uh, broadly here, but in other words, it's not your headache. It's just intensity that's arising. The backache that you might have. <laughs> uh, one of my uh, one of my teachers, she she said after um, uh, I guess it was 30, 40 years of meditating, she never really had much physical pain, and then suddenly started developing some back stuff that was going on, and she she called it her little friend. You know, instead of this excruciating pain I've got going on in my back, it was the little friend that keeps showing up. And so her relationship to it at the level of mind was fairly light. And as a result, if you have a relationship in your mind to something that is fairly light, we tend to experience it bodily uh, fairly evenly without a lot of uh, treacherousness. So if you get a headache, this goes for everybody in the room, if you're dealing with physical discomfort in your practice, please let it fill you. Practice with it. Dance with it. Oh, 
There's some intensity. Hmm. Wow. And you'll find some really interesting things about, about uh, intensity. First of all, intensity always shows up in almost like this bizarre internal sine curve. It always is. <laughs> it always does that all the time. And, and sometimes those, the, the, you know, the uh, frequency is really broad. Sometimes the amplitude is really broad. I mean, it depends. But you can begin to quite dispassionately observe your experience to the point where your relationship with it changes. It's not that the intensity isn't there, but you're no longer caught by the intensity. And this is exactly the freedom that the Buddha and all the other mystics have talked about. You know? I, I think it's very interesting because some people will say, I have a low tolerance for pain. Mm -hmm. They have a high tolerance. And often thought, it can't be that different. It has to be how you, your attitude mm -hmm. what's happening. I think it's a really neat way of looking at it. Yeah, it does seem to be attitudinal. Yeah, a high tolerance for pain perhaps is somebody that can meet the intensity without getting as rattled as somebody who's got a low tolerance for pain. Somebody with a low tolerance for pain is somebody who really has a high degree of need for pleasure. Yeah, I think I said somebody who has, I'm really bad at this because I don't, <laughs> I never know what's coming out of my mouth. So uh, I think I said the, somebody who has a low tolerance for pain has a high need for pleasure. And as we all know in this room, pleasure ain't the deal. Life, it, the first noble truth in Buddhism is life is suffering. It's not life is pain. It's life is suffering. Okay, pain, pain is an intensity that marks itself very, very clearly in our experience. Suffering is kind of like a general ennui, a general ugh, right? But that's it. That's where we, we and the reason why this happens is because we cling to non-suffering. We get caught by non-suffering. I want, I want, I want, I want desire. And desire can't, is, is not wrong, but desire cannot arise in any experience other than the I experience, other than the me, the mine, the ego, or what we might call the mind. That's exactly where it's always going always gonna to come up. And we get caught by desire. Play with it. The next time you feel desire for something, like 72% cacao, Man, don't put it anywhere in my house. <laughs> my wife last night dared me. She uh, she goes. She was up in the uh, she was in the kitchen, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm watching the Super Bowl. Which, by the way, I told you, <laughs> Saints were going to win. I told you. But anyway, so so I'm watching the Super Bowl, and and I hear the uh, kind of an unwrapping, and then that crack. You know, and it's an unmistakable crack. It's like, and she, and she starts eating it. She goes, mmm, 72%. <laughs> and I'm like, ha, oh, because I love the slight, the slight uh, hardness to it. I can't really fathom the, the, uh, 
the addiction that people have to milk chocolate because that's for wussies. I like this hard, that's just an attachment I have, but I hear this crack and then she looks at me and she takes a bite and she goes, like in the game? And I'm going, you know, it's really, really exciting game. And I'm like, uh, uh, uh. And she goes, I dare you not to have any. So of course, she invoked the old dare, which gets the ego totally involved in the entire experience. And then it's like, oh, you watch me, watch me. And what the, the, the cool thing was, it was a chance for me to really watch the desire build and build. And then, of course, because she's my best pal, she started going, mmm, <laughs> mocking me. Yeah. How's your Zen mastery now? <laughs> But uh, all kidding aside, watch, watch for that, that gift of desire to show up. Watch for that gift of pain. It's a gift. It's a red carpet right into, right into awakening if we can meet it fully. It's especially cool to watch the low-level stuff, like the stuff we just kind of get caught by. If somebody has a certain behavior pattern that kind of annoys or there's a word that we don't like, or there's a relationship we're in where the power differential is something we're not real comfortable. Watch those, watch those. Those are really cool, really cool. They can lead us right onto, right back into this flow because that's just a stone we need to, we need to lift out of the way. First bow to you guys, yeah, and yes. Can we jump right from chocolate and fear to our attachment to life? Yeah. And why is it that, um, and it, to me it seems like it's probably the strongest attachment, the one that's way over there that you know, we don't want to check out, we don't want to leave this earth. Why is it that when I'm depressed, I'm not as attached to this life? I mean, it seems obvious, but it's... Why do you think? Well... Depression is just intensity. Like pain? Yeah. So then I wish that I could have that, you know, same detachment. Or equanimity. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, has your depression ever lasted... Um, has your depression ever broken into non-depression? Then you recognize that depression itself is temporary, like all things, right? When our relationship to depression, especially when it, when it goes into that space of, I'm not so sure I really even care about living because this hurts so badly, when, when we're in that space, here again, it's a gift. Because what it's basically doing is it's showing us this amazing intensity. And instead of us looking at the intensity and recognizing it as, wow, instead of getting curious about it, what are we trying to do? We're trying to run from it. And when we run from it, we actually feed it. Pain and depression are fed by movement. Okay, in this case, movement away from. If you stop running from it, it's no longer depression. It's just darkness. 
and darkness eventually gives way to light. Always. Always. Light eventually gives way to darkness. Always. And then what are we given? We are given basically these waves I was talking about. That's the invitation to learn how to surf. Now, you don't have to surf. You can keep getting pounded by the waves, you know. But the, the beauty of, this, of learning to surf is that suddenly you recognize that, and, and you hear surfers talk about this all the time, too. It's quite amazing. It's not that they are on the wave, but that they actually are the wave, right? My son's a surfer. Okay, well, then, you, yeah. Gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's a it's the, our de, our depression is is a beautiful gift in this practice, just like our pleasure. Pleasure is even it's not as potent because usually pleasure is something we we tend not to practice with so much. We just indulge in the pleasure and then lament the fact that it starts hitting that tipping point where it's starting to go away. It's, ah. Right. <laughs> And then we start practicing again. But being able to practice equally, with, with an equal intensity, whether we are in pain or we are in a space of pleasure, becomes the mark of someone who can be very, very at ease in the face of chaos. And that person has a depth of realization that only goes in one direction. It only becomes more expansive. Is that optimism, though? I'm sorry? Is that optimism, I think optimism is, is exactly what it is. It's just belief, okay? And it's not that optimism is bad unless we cling to optimism. If we cling to optimism, we then use it as an identity. And the identity, if an identity is formed around optimism, it can, it, it's not, like I said, it's not necessarily something bad, but the clinging to our optimism, just like the clinging to the identity, Gets us off the track. It's, that's not part of the surfing. Is is surfing optimistic? Well, it's a matter of perspective, I guess. If if you're looking at surfing as a form of, I mean, that's how you deal with. I mean, that's optimistic. That's an optimistic approach, right? Surfing, reaction. surfing. Oh, cool. Surfing. You said reaction, right? Well, that's the action. That's, uh, yeah. So surfing is an appropriate response oh. to waves. Uh. Okay. And that's Buddha. It's generous. It's open. It's loving. It's compassionate. It is not caught by time. You will find absolutely no surfer worth her salt catching a wave and then going, hmm. <laughs> Almost lunchtime. It won't happen. You have to be in the moment. You have to be right there for that experience. There's this uh, film where Laird Hamilton, who's one of the greatest surfers maybe that ever lived, uh, talks about how he was at this one particular at this one particular break and came in off this wave, and he just sat down on the beach and wept because he had been able to experience this in his life. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that Laird is necessarily enlightened, but I will say 
that, or he's not any more or less than anybody else. It's just that that's not his point. His point is utter, complete, and total participation with the wave. And so that's an appropriate response. And it has nothing to do with optimism. Right? Now, having said that, Buddhas tend to be really optimistic. Because <laughs> they know another wave's coming. They know that everything's temporary. That's the way of dealing. Well, th dealing with what? They don't have to deal with anything. There's no obstruction. Dealing rec means that you have to kind of, you know, you, you deal with what you, you know. Navigating around the storm rather than Exactly, rather than meeting it fully. And the, the, the cool thing about that metaphor is that meeting the stone with your full attention is what moves it. You don't have to lift it. You have to practice meeting it with your full attention. And then it moves on its own. It's no longer there when you see through it. might be another way of looking at it. Sir Kevin. When you were talking about the first noble truth, um, I was wondering when <clears throat> does suffering uh, uh, become noble? When it, I mean, because usually it's just misery. You're, you're caught up in misery. But mm -hmm. what makes it noble? Truth. It's utterly, completely, and totally shared. It's not your misery. It's misery. It's not bound by I, me, or mine. You think it is, because you think it's your pain. You think it's your headache. You think it's your depression. You think it's your... It's not. It's totally shared by anyone who positions a self against the universe. So the more the me gets caught up in the suffering, the more suffering you generate. That's exactly right. Not only for you, but for everybody else. Right. Which is why maybe one of the greatest gifts you could give to humanity is to sit still. That's always been this great, this great critique of this practice. It's like, you know, you ought to get off your asses, get out there, and start protesting, or start, you know, whatever it is. You need to, you need this, without action, this is meaningless. Well, to a degree, that's true. If you become attached to your sitting practice and don't let it inform a living practice, yeah, you're wasting time and oxygen. So even in the midst of all this suffering, there's stillness. There. Stillness is never not there. Right. Because all the stuff we've been talking about is all movement. It's all surface. It's on the surface of the, to continue with this, it's on the surface of the ocean. And what, uh, what the stillness is that we're talking about is the kind of stillness we find at the very bottom of the ocean. It's still ocean, just like what's on the surface is still ocean. But the quality of stillness is different. And you can take it a step further. What's the fundamental quality of that entire oceanic experience? Wetness. It's never not wet. The ocean is never not wet, whether it's hurricane or it's placid doldrums, whatever. It's always wet. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about stillness. We're trying to get to that place that always is. And we recognize that there's no getting to it. It's always here. We just get out of its way so that it can express itself through us, through our activity, consciously. Svaha. Svaha to the rest of you, yes. <laughs>
Thanks for coming this evening. Appreciate it.